Welcome everyone to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I am your host, Kevin, and today we are going to dive into true crime. I know that for a significant portion of the podcast listening community, uh, this is a very exciting thing. So this one is just for you. My guest for this episode is the author and historian Simon Botts. Simon is a New York Times bestselling author and currently teaches American legal history at John Jay College at the City University of New York. He joins me via Skype to discuss his latest book, The Girl in the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century. Simon's book is about the 1906 murder of a prominent New York architect at the hands of a millionaire playboy which occurred in front of hundreds in a theater at Madison Square Garden. At the center of this murder, and the sensational trial that followed, was a young Broadway chorus girl named Evelyn Nesbitt. I hope you enjoy today's true crime tale. If at the end of this podcast you enjoyed what you heard today... Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to this and give the show a review. I would be very appreciative and it would do a lot to help get the word out. Now on to the podcast. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kevin. Well, thank you for having me on your uh, on your podcast. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about the book. As am I. This was a very uh, interesting read. Um, you and I are going to talk a little bit on, on true crime today. But uh, before we get started, um, could I ask a, a little bit about you? I understand that you have a PhD in, in history and sociology, and you've done some uh, extensive writing uh, in the historical uh, field? Yes, I, I'm a native of Britain, and I was born in London. I did my undergraduate degree in England, and then I wanted to do a PhD in the history of science, and I came to the University of Pennsylvania to study that subject. And I got on to legal history, so now my field is much more legal history than it is the history of science. And the, I made that move because I found a legal case, which was the uh, Leopold and Loeb case, and that was really all about science. The two boys admitted the crime, and the defense brought in scientific experts. And so I wrote a book about that, and really what I found the advantages of doing legal history uh, true me in, so to speak, and and the advantages really are that, in a sense, the the resources, the research that you do is fairly self-contained in the sense that if you have the transcripts of a trial or a hearing, then that's the basis of whatever you write. Those don't really exist very frequently. You don't find them so frequently because there's usually no reason to keep that stuff, but from time to time you find that. And um, I'm currently a professor of history at John Jay College, which is part of the City University of New York. In New York State, there are two state universities. One is SUNY, which is the State University of New York, which is outside New York City. And City University of New York is, um, I think there are 20-something colleges as part of that uh, university. 
Okay, so your most recent book is The Girl on the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century. And this is a very interesting uh, case and trial. Um, but I wanted to ask you, how did you discover uh, this topic? Because I had never heard of this before. Well, I was living, I, I'm living in New York City, and I think what I always look for is a topic that doesn't require me to go to other places to do research because that gets to be expensive, it gets to be very time consuming. And so I was looking for a legal case in New York City that would provide the basis for a trade book, which is really a commercial book as opposed to an academic book. And this case seemed to have it all, you know, once I discovered it. And when you live in New York, you get to know a little bit about the history almost uh, by happenstance in a sense. And um, this case had it all. It had a very famous architect, Stanford White, who was really responsible for many of the landmark buildings in New York City and was also one of the three partners in a very famous architectural firm, McKim, Mead and White. Um, he had a relationship with a chorus girl, Evelyn Nesbitt, who was uh, in the chorus in a production called Floradora, which ran at the Century Theatre, which, which was on 39th and Broadway. And um, then the relationship between the two of them kind of cooled down a little bit, and Evelyn Nesbitt became engaged and then married to someone called Harry Thor, who was a millionaire playboy who had an annual income in 1906 of $80,000, which is pretty much a million dollars in our money, in 2019 money. And of course, in those days, there were no federal taxes and there were no state taxes. And so I don't think there were state, state taxes. I know there weren't federal taxes. So he was very much the man about town and um and then in 1905 he married evelyn nesbitt so there are three main characters it was a sensational and when stanford white stanford white was 48 years old evelyn nesbitt was 16 years old when they met it was in 1901 and according to evelyn nesbitt's testimony Stanford White drugged her and raped her one evening when Evelyn's mother was away from the city in visiting friends in Pittsburgh. And Evelyn said nothing about this rape until 1905 when she was with her future husband, Harry, in Paris, and she told the story to him. And after that, he became, and then he married her and he became obsessed with the thought that Stanford White this very famous architect had raped his wife when his wife was a young girl. And the thing that we probably don't appreciate nowadays is that New York City was a much smaller place and people didn't really travel as much as they did as they do nowadays. And so the area in which the well-to-do, the middle class and the upper class lived was rather fairly small. You know, it was between about 8th Avenue and um, probably 4th Avenue from east to west. And then from north to south, it was 14th Street to up about 59th Street. So the thing was that Harry Thor and Stanford White and Evelyn Nesbitt were bumping into each other all the time. And, um, 
and this then culminated in the murder in 1905 of Stanford White that um, all three of them by chance happened to be at a uh, a theater production in Madison Square Garden and um, Stanford White was sitting at the front of the audience at a little table. There were tables, it was a rooftop theater and um, Harry Thor saw Stanford White sitting at the front, walked up to him and fired three bullets from his gun and killed Stanford White on the spot. And he did this so in, front of, in front of a whole crowd. In front of hundreds of people. I mean, it was right in the middle of the second act. And and in fact, you know, a lot of people nearby thought that this was part of the play because there had been a duel uh, scene on the stage. And But everybody on the stage, of course, realized this was not part of the play. They all began to panic and wonder what was going on. And there was Stanford White lying on the ground with blood trickling out of his head. And um, and Harry Thor just stood there and held the gun above his head. And then eventually uh, the duty policeman came and took him and he was taken to the local police station and uh, ended up in the cells that evening. But no, yes, no. it was carried out in front of hundreds of spectators, hundreds of theatergoers. Now, um, before we um, get too far into the trial that'll ensue after this, um, yeah. what what can you tell us about the relationship between Evelyn Nesbitt and Stanford White? Well, it's a very interesting question because um, on the face of it, it's a predatory relationship. It's a relationship of um, a man who is middle-aged, could quite easily have been Evelyn's father. Evelyn is 16 years old. She has no resources to speak of. She was not by any means a well-known actress. In fact, she was really one, just one of hundreds and hundreds of chorus girls who made their living in New York at the time. And um, But Stanford White was attracted to very young girls, and he got to know her, and within a few weeks of getting to know Evelyn, um, he paid for Evelyn's mother to go to Pittsburgh, and while Evelyn's mother was away, uh, Stanford White invited Evelyn to his apartment. But it's it's a very interesting question that you ask, because during the subsequent trial, Evelyn painted Stanford White as a predator, as someone who quite self-consciously and deliberately engineered this whole scenario and then when he had her in his bedroom drugged her with wine and then raped her and she woke up according to her testimony naked and Stanford White was next to her in bed also naked but there is a kind of qualifying about this because um, subsequently Evelyn Nesbitt wrote an autobiography and she was very she had a much different attitude and it's really not at all clear what the relationship was and the best is that you can say that Stanford White had this relationship with the young girl but everybody used to say that this was a very gregarious man a very generous man someone who would give 
to a, a, a homeless person, give money on the whim of it, do that quite frequently, always help our friends, and was very generous to Evelyn and very generous to the family. Evelyn lived in New York with her mother, and um, and Stanford White spent quite a lot of money on the family and on the girl. Now, um, to us, in, in 2019, you know, that kind of relationship is very uh, suspect. But what does that tell us um, about the culture at the time? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people say, well, when I tell them this story, they say, oh, well, that's the way that was 100 years ago. Or no one thought much of it. And I actually dispute that, and I think that's not the case, because the crime, there was a very interesting series of legislative changes just before this happened. And in the 1890s, the state legislature raised the age of consent from 10 to 16. Okay, that was the first thing. And then five years later, they raised the age of consent to 18. And they also increased the penalties for rape to 20 years. All right, so it's no question that that society at that time took the crime of rape very, very seriously. And of course, if you were sentenced to 20 years in prison in 1901, that was a very brutal, brutal sentence because you would end up in Sing Sing prison. And that was, you know, it would just be very brutal treatment of prisoners in Sing Sing prison at the time, far more so than it is now. So the idea that this was regarded by that society as as kind of par for the course or, you know, kind of boys will be boys. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think that, uh, rape and pedophilia were punished very severely. So you might be asking the question, well, if that's the case, then why was Sam for white not prosecuted? And one of the similarities with our time with 2019 or with the me too movement is that in fact, the reluctance of the authorities, to move, to actually take on a prominent, influential, wealthy individual. And Stanford White was very well known. He was uh, one of the most well-known people in the city at the time. He was also very influential. He had many, many friends. And the district attorney just didn't move against him. And, um, and that's the best explanation I can give for that. But that's very similar to our own time. You know, I mean, before two years, I mean, we're talking about 24 months before 24 months ago, a lot of stuff was going on that we now know about Charlie Rose, Harvey Weinstein, um, Matt Lauer, but nobody was saying a word and this stuff was going on year after year after year and nobody was moving against it and no one was prosecuting. Or the other case, of course, is Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, he's perhaps the classic case because uh, the prosecution of him down in Florida was really just uh, almost laughable. So that's basically, I, I don't think that there was a more indulgent attitude, any more or less indulgent in those days than there is in our day. Uh, one similarity I, I did notice in, in reading the book is that, um, you know, guys like Stanford White seem to have the means to make these uh, problems go away. Yes, or perhaps you could say the problems didn't even really come up. I mean, the other thing to think about is that he never 
as far as I can tell, he never had any kind of relationship with any of the children of wealthy New Yorkers. And the New York elite at the time was very well defined. People always talk about the 400 leading families, all right? And the gulf between poor and rich was very, very sharp and very pronounced. And the thing is, why then does Stanford White have relationships with young girls who have no resources, nobody to fall back on, no support mechanism? And the answer is because they have no way of uh, getting the authorities to act. They have no influence. And Stanford White has all the influence. And that would have been the case with Evelyn Nesbitt because she was quite literally, the, the family just relied upon her work in the theater. And then Stanford White gave the money as well. But apart from that, they, were, they had no resources to fall back on whatsoever. And so, so Stanford White is deliberately targeting young girls who are vulnerable in that sense. And, and if Evelyn Nesbitt had not married Harry Thor, who is a millionaire, then Evelyn Nesbitt probably would have disappeared, would have vanished without trace, and we wouldn't be talking about this case now, and I would never have written a book because it would never have come out in public. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Harry Thaw. She she keeps her assault from uh, Stanford White uh, a secret, uh, even from her own mother, um, and the right. first person she will reveal that to is is Harry Thaw. But tell us a little bit about him and their relationship and their eventual marriage. Yes, well, he was um, 31, I think, when he met Evelyn Nesbitt. And he was a rather eccentric character, to put it mildly. He had um, come from an extremely wealthy family. His father had been one of the early investors in the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was kind of the, which was the Facebook of the time. It was like the Microsoft of the time. It was the big, big corporation in, in the Eastern United States. And the father also bought up thousands of acres of land in Western Pennsylvania, which turned out to have coal. There was just coal everywhere. So they were immensely wealthy. It it's it was never uh, it was never easy for me to figure out how much the father, what the family fortune was, but there are estimates that it was as much as forty million dollars in nineteen hundred money. So that's like half a billion dollars, five hundred million dollars. Wow. And the father had ten children. And each of those children, the, when he died, the estate was in the control of the mother. And each of the 10 children received $80,000 a year. And so Harry Thor, he did go to college. He went first to a college called um, uh, the University of Worcester, which is in uh, eastern Ohio and is now actually called Worcester College. I think it's called the College of Worcester. And he dropped out of that college in his first year. Then he went to the University of Pittsburgh. He dropped out of Pitt. And then he ended up in Harvard. All right. So I always, when I give a talk, I always say, well, Harvard must have been his safety school. And um, and there was something about Harry Thor uh, doing something indecent with a young boy and but it was all hushed up. But it never, I never found out the real details. And he was expelled from Harvard again in his first year. 
And then I think he finally kind of realized, well, I don't really need to go to college. I don't need an education because I've got an income of $80,000 a year. And he used to then just go and live for part of most of the year, for about half the year. He would go and live in Europe, um, usually in Paris, and he'd come back for about four months and he'd go off to Paris again. He would make these annual journeys around the uh, Middle East and around Europe and just have adventures. And and then he came back to New York. Well, he came back, he was from Pittsburgh. The family was from Pittsburgh originally. But um, most people who had money, they would end up in New York because that's where all the entertainment is. That's where the theater is. That's where the high life is. And that's what Harry Thor did. And he was very well known as someone who was very aggressive, very impetuous, very demanding, would always cause a scene if nothing went right, and was very well known also, but known in a very negative way. And he he then did marry Evelyn. I kind of wonder why she would marry him. And my best guess is that it was the fact that Harry Thor represented financial security, that if she married this incredibly wealthy young man, she would basically be set for life. And, and it's very difficult for us to appreciate how perilous it must have been without any kind of safety net, without any kind of unemployment insurance, without any kind of social security. None of that existed, you know, for anybody. And so if you didn't have a if you didn't have an education, if you didn't have some kind of training, if you didn't have some kind of employment, then what exactly were you going to do? And that was a very common thing in the early part of the 20th century that young girls who couldn't get an education because education was largely uh, reserved for men, for boys, uh, ended up in, as prostitutes because they couldn't make a, a living otherwise. And and that was one of the common complaints of the time. Why was prostitution so ubiquitous in New York? And a great deal of the reason lies in the fact that young girls had very few other ways of making a living. Uh, yeah. you know, not a knock against uh, Evelyn. Um, you know, I think for everybody, financial considerations played a much bigger role in marriage at the time than, than what we're accustomed to today. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, it was a tradition in this musical in which she had a minor part. Um, the six leading ladies, the female members who formed um, the stars of this, a lot of them ended up marrying millionaires. And it was very common. And in fact, the best thing you could possibly do was to marry not just a millionaire, but a member of the British aristocracy. And so these very beautiful women, very attractive women, usually ended up marrying either an American millionaire, of which there were many, because this is the Gilded Age, this is when fortunes were made. And so these beautiful women who were in these musicals, they would end up marrying millionaires or marrying into the British aristocracy. So what Evelyn did by marrying Harry Thor was actually quite common, and, and many, women, many of the women in these productions did that. So she confides in in her, I, I think they were engaged at the time, perhaps, uh, in, in yes. with Harry, um, about uh, her rape from uh, Stanford White. And as you described earlier, he uh, Thaw will, will murder White in front of a, a large crowd. Um, 
what what about the trial? Um, let, let's move into that. Evelyn Nesbitt becomes uh, front and center of, of that trial. Well, here's where it gets really tricky and really complicated. And um, so I'll lay out the scenario for you. So here is Harry Thor worth $40 million. His mother is saying, I'll spend as much money as it takes to get you off this uh, off this charge, which is in a way ridiculous because the murder was carried out in cold blood and it was carried out in front of hundreds of witnesses, you know. And uh, But his mother says, I'll spend as much money as it takes to get you off. And so uh, the district attorney, who is uh, Travis Jerome, charges Harry Thor with first-degree murder, which is a capital offense, which means going to the electric chair. And um, they come to trial, and the defense lawyers make the... They they argue that the best defense is going to be for Harry to go into court, and his lawyers will claim this was justifiable homicide. And the the phrase for that is the unwritten law, that the law is not actually written down, but there's the defense that if a man rapes your wife or assaults your wife, you are justified in taking the matter into your own hands and shooting the man who raped your wife. And so this is the defense they come to. They come into court in 1907. And, um, but of course, it become, it's pretty obvious that there's only one witness who can really testify, and that's Evelyn Nesbitt. And she has to testify that, yes, Stanford White raped her. And her, the more graphic her testimony is, the more valuable it is, because the more graphic it is, presumably then the more shocked the jury will be and the more likely they are to acquit Harry Thorpe. All right, so Evelyn Nesbitt goes into court and she gives this very detailed account of the rape, and that's how we know about it, because of her testimony. And the defense attorney does something quite clever, which is he doesn't get Evelyn Nesbitt to testify directly about the rape, because if if she did that, she would then be open to cross-examination by the district attorney and the defense lawyers didn't trust Evelyn's testimony enough that they wanted her to be cross-examined. And so what they said, Evelyn always recounted her testimony as testimony of a conversation between her and her future husband in the hotel room in Paris. Now, the question for the district attorney is, the problem for the district attorney is you can't cross-examine someone on a conversation, okay? You could cross-examine them on the on the actual rape if that had been brought into evidence, but it wasn't. The only evidence that was brought in was a conversation between Evelyn and Harry. So, so just, became, just so I understand, the, the yeah. question is not whether or not the rape occurred, but whether or not she told thought, thought about it, regardless of whether or not what she was telling him was accurate. Yes, I think it doesn't really matter. She's not talking. Her testimony is not about the rape. It's about the it's about the conversation she has with her husband. And so the assumption, but the presumption is that 
her conversation with the husband is truthful. She's testifying truthfully what she told her husband. But the problem then for the district attorney is, so how can he cross-examine her on a conversation she has with her husband? And I'm, I'm trying to explain this as clearly as I can, because if she had testified directly about the rape and said, well, it happened on such and such a date, and it happened here, right, then he could presumably have tried to get an alibi for Stanford White if, if the rape had not occurred, all right? But because she doesn't testify directly about the rape, he can't cross-examine her about details that might have enabled the district attorney to get an alibi for Stanford White. So the district attorney says to the newspaper reporters, after she's testified about the conversation, the district attorney says, well, if she had testified directly about the rape, I could have proved that Stanford White was somewhere else that evening. <clears throat> she... Um, she doesn't say the date when this rape occurred, but she gives enough information for the district attorney to deduce the supposed the date of the rape. And he says, I could have provided an alibi for Stanford White if I had been able to cross-examine her directly on the rape. But he was never, never able to do that. Um, this okay. couple chapters in the book um, I found um, extremely fascinating. Just the, the legal maneuvering of these um, uh, two lawyers, the prosecutor, the district attorney, and, and the defense trying to uh, outmaneuver each other right. in um, for, for their respective outcomes. I, I found that particularly interesting. Um, but as this is going on... I, uh, I, can say, I can say parenthetically, actually, I, the more I do these kinds of legal history cases, the more impressed I am by the lawyers. I mean, it's actually quite astonishing as how clever they are and how cunning and how they use what they the tools they have to get the result that they want. But it, anyway, it, it, it's very much uh, you know like a game of chess. Yes. Yeah. Um, so while this this trial is going on, um, can you tell us about the, the, for lack of a better word, media circus that's following it? Well, it's enormous. I mean, partly because I mean, for one, for a beginning, there are fourteen daily newspapers in New York City at the time. 14 daily newspapers and they're all competing with each other and they're all getting they're always trying to get readership okay and they know that it's kind of darwinian struggle for survival and um, so they're all reporting feverishly on this case uh the newspapers devote page after page each day there's quite literally page after page after page of every page containing something about the trial and the trial, the transcript of the trial doesn't exist. It's disappeared, but um, the newspapers reported verbatim the dialogue of the trial. And there is only a fraction, there's a fraction of the transcript that still exists and it's up in uh, a museum somewhere up, up I'm not. I'm not sure if it's, up, it's upstate New York somewhere, the Fenimore Art Museum, and it's um, it's very interesting to me because in that fragment, the language they use is far more graphic than the language that's produced in the newspapers, and so what appears in the newspapers is graphic, but it's nothing like what the actual testimony must have been, and the words that the district attorney was using was very, very frank. Stuff. So, but that's besides the point. 
there was enormous interest in this case. <clears throat> and part of that also is because the nature of newspaper coverage in those days was very different from what it is now, that most newspapers were focused on the hometown. So Chicago newspapers, most of their press would be about Chicago. St. Louis, it would be about St. Louis. Philadelphia, it would be about Philadelphia. And the New York newspapers were, were so focused on this case and it was of such interest to the people in New York. And it, and it has all the elements of a sensation. <clears throat> I mean, Stanford White, this man about town, a chorus girl, the theater, Broadway, a millionaire, you know, so that everyone was fascinated by it. And the media coverage was intense. And then crowds also would gather every day outside the court courthouse and um, <clears throat> quite literally thousands and thousands of people would clog the streets and everybody was trying to get in but of course there were only about a hundred seats in the actual courtroom so it was very difficult to get access to it but there was just enormously intense interest in in every aspect of the case um, yeah you even write that uh, president teddy roosevelt was reading about it Yes, indeed, because um, the coverage in the newspaper, I mean, this was this was someone talking about a rape. I mean, how many times before 1900 had that been in the newspapers and how many times had a description of a rape occurred? I mean, when she says she woke up naked and there was blood on the sheets, all right? I mean, this is something new and it was sensational and shocking. Roosevelt, the president at the time, actually wanted to stop this. And he tried to get members of his cabinet to somehow find a way to stop the newspapers from publishing all this, all this detail. But of course, the federal government has very little, very little jurisdiction over what goes on in a state. And so, and of course, you know, there's the First Amendment rights of newspapers. You can't censor newspapers. And so nothing happened in that sense, but it, it reached the, the president of the United States. He was reading about this in the newspapers. So what is the outcome of that trial? Well, the testimony was very um, compelling. And the jury deliberated, went away and deliberated 12 men, and they came back. They couldn't reach a decision. I think it was... The final vote was 10 to 2, if I'm right, and it was a hung jury, and they couldn't um, couldn't give a decision. And the district attorney, the district attorney always has a choice. Does he go to a second trial, or can he just drop the case? And Travis Jerome was determined to get Thor, because he didn't want this wealthy man to, uh, to escape justice. He didn't want the money of the Thor family to get allow Thor to get off. And so he went to a second trial. And the second trial, they changed the defense tactics. And the defense now claimed that Harry Thor had been mentally ill for much of his life, that during the time of the shooting, he was insane, that he'd had many, many problems as a child growing up. And what they did is they brought in witnesses who testified to every single stage of his life from when he was a child, a baby infant, all the way through teenage years, all the way up into adulthood. And um, they all testified that he was in, that he was mentally ill. And then they had psychiatrists who came and said, yes, he's, he was insane when he pulled the trigger. But they also testified that he had improved since his 
sentences imprisonment. And the jury, the jury in the second trial then um, decided he was not guilty by reason of insanity. And the family, the Thor family, was hoping that they would be allowed to have Thor in a private sanitarium where he would obviously have all kinds of rights and would get fabulous treatment and anything his money could buy him. But the judge sentenced him to a an, an insane asylum in Matuan for the criminal insane. Very unpleasant place to be. There were two, New York State had two asylums for the criminal insane. So this is people who have been, who have um, been charged with a crime but found to be insane. And the worst place to be was Danamora because that was way upstate near the border with Canada and it was for people who had committed, um, I'm not sure what the difference was in legal terms, but they they were far worse up in Danamora. But Thor ended up in Matawan and as soon as he's in Matawan, he tries all kinds of legal maneuvers to get out. And so, and this is where it got to be ridiculously uh, complicated. I mean, for example, the Thor family. So they wanted Harry Thor to be declared bankrupt. Why would they want him to do that? Because then there would be a court in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, that would have to hold a hearing on whether Harry Thor was in fact bankrupt. That would mean that Thor could then be taken from the asylum to the legal hearing in Pittsburgh. And of course, the moment he crossed the state border, he would be out of the reach of the New York authorities. And so obviously New York was not gonna let him leave the asylum to go to this hearing. But that's very typical of the kind of legal maneuvers that the family engaged in, every, every, every possibility. And they had several hearings of habeas corpus, but the judge always rejected the legal arguments in these hearings. There's even a section yeah. where they uh, start investigating the administration of the asylum, correct? Yeah, so Thor's mother. So what Mary did, Mary was probably the cunning, most cunning of the lot. And what she did was actually paid someone to commit a, a crime be, who was, that person was then found insane and ended up in Madawan. And she was, he was like a spy for the Thor family. And when this guy was inside the asylum, he was keeping a record of everything that happened in the asylum. And then the Thor family would give it to the newspapers and there would be a scandal about this thing or that thing that happened in the asylum. And the idea was that then they would get rid of the hospital superintendent and they would get a new superintendent who would then issue a certificate to say that Harry Thor had regained his sanity. So you can see the length that they went to to get this, to get their son out of this asylum. She was it relentless. It was quite extraordinary. Yes, relentless. And, um, but he could never get out. He was never able to get out. And this is just driving him. I mean, if he, if he wasn't insane when he went in, he was certainly getting more and more frustrated because what he was he was reading in the newspapers about Evelyn's life, and she was of course back in New York City, and she was going out for dinners, meeting men, doing all sorts of things, and the press is playing this up, and he's getting more and more angry that Evelyn isn't moving to be 
close to him in Marawan. Uh, and uh, they get separated. The divorce, the divorce doesn't happen for several years, but they, the, the gulf between them happens very quickly. That, in fact, within three months, Evelyn and Harry are basically not talking to each other. And um, um, I, found, I it, found that part really interesting because it seems at that point in the um, long ordeal is when Evelyn begins to mature um, and, you know, lose a little bit of her youthful uh, naivete. And, um, you know, she starts, instead of testifying on his behalf, becoming, you know, his defender, she starts testifying against him. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what happens to her is an extraordinary change in independence of saying that she, she's been tricked for so often and manipulated by these men. And, and I think what she did was tremendously courageous because what she's doing is she's saying she rejects the Thor family. They've mistreated her. They've used her. They've, they've essentially, she saved Thor's life by testifying, right? I mean, if she hadn't gone in and testified on the stand that she had been raped, then he would have been sent to the electric chair. And she felt that the Thor family then just rejected her the moment that he was in the asylum because she was no longer of any use to them. And this way that she was so courageous, and and this is one of the things that, as I was writing the book, I really began to to think about how previous historians had dealt with this, and it really was um, very. I'm not going to say it was shameful, but it was kind of there was this, this kind of ignorance in the previous accounts because they always used this word seduction when they described what Stanford White did to Evelyn Nesbitt. And for the life of me, I can't understand that. How can you describe when a man drugs and then rapes a young 16-year-old girl when they're unconscious? That is not a seduction. And um, and then also there was this there's this, this tendency to regard Evelyn Nesbitt of, as someone of no consequence, when in fact what she was doing was she was alone, she had no support, um, she was fighting the world, she was fighting these men who had far more wealth and influence than she ever had. And her life was like that. I mean, even after this whole business settled down, she was still alone and she was trying to make her own way in the world. So I had great admiration for her. Um, so what is the, uh, in the um, over... Uh, hundred years uh, since this mm -hmm. case. Um, what is the significance and uh, legacy? Well, as a story, it's a fascinating story. I think what it does is open up a a, a, a window into that society. And if I would say anything, I think that what surprised me, in fact, was something I talked about a little bit earlier, was the fact how seriously the state of New York took these crimes and that it wasn't something that was uh, regarded as trivial a hundred years ago. I think also it shows this imbalance between the rich and the poor. The fact that Evelyn, in a way, her life was very tragic because after the trial had finished and, and what happened, of course, is that I, one thing I didn't say is that Thor did escape from the asylum, I think in 1913, went up to Canada was brought, eventually brought back to New York, was put on trial for a different offense, for conspiracy to escape, and was eventually released, I think, in 1915. 
But once that had all died down, you know, Evelyn Nesbitt had a certain fame, a certain notoriety, and her life became very, very difficult because she tried to make a living in vaudeville. Um, she did do some movies, silent movies, in Hollywood, uh, six or seven, I think. She became addicted to cocaine, and that addiction lasted for about three years. But eventually she got herself off of it. She tried to open up a tea room in Manhattan, I think on 53rd Street, but that didn't succeed. And she eventually ended up um, in vaudeville uh, in Atlantic City during the summers. And then um, she married someone, I think in 1916, got divorced in 1915, and married uh, someone who was also a dancer. And, and, and she, she got divorced from him as well very quickly and made a kind of living as a dancer, as a hostess in clubs, that sort of thing. Um, but I think the sa thing that saved her was that she had had a child. And this child, who was born, I think, around 1909, perhaps, um, grew up and became a test pilot and uh, moved to California had a family and he supported Evelyn and Evelyn eventually moved to California and uh, passed away there many years later. I'm not sure when, but um, <clears throat> in 1955, there was a film made of the case called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing. And that starred Joan Collins as Evelyn Nesbitt. It starred Ray Milland as Stanford White and Farley Granger as Harry Thor. And Joan Collins is still around, of course. The two men were big stars in the 1950s. And this is a very interesting movie. If you want to, if any, if read the book, read, look at the movie. And it's interesting because Evelyn Nesbitt was a consultant on the movie. And it presents a rather different picture of the events that happened, um, a very sanitized picture, but this is 1955, so nothing uh, too outrageous was produced by Hollywood in those years. Yeah, when I when I saw that, I, I was surprised that, that this topic would be taken up in, in a film at the time, you know, for how con conservative that era was. Well, in fact, what's interesting about that movie is that... Um, <clears throat> It presents Harry Thor as a lunatic, as very aggressive, very violent, and presents Stanford White as a guardian of Evelyn Nesbitt. All right. And my question when watching the film is how did that narrative get established? Part of the answer might be that historians. Stanford White, there's no question about it, was a great architect. He really did change New York City. He introduced all these grand buildings, and before Stanford White, New York had never had any grand buildings. And I think what happened is that historians wanted to rehabilitate the reputation of Stanford White as an architect. And it's very inconvenient that he happened to have raped a 16-year-old girl. 
And so, in a sense, all this talk about seduction was really trying as part of the campaign to rehabilitate the reputation of Stanford White. And you can see this movie as part of that. You know, here's this great architect, one of the greatest architects in the history of the United States. Someone who introduces so many architectural styles to the United States. And yet he would be tainted by this by this rape. And so in the film, the rape virtually disappears. And the kind of relationship that exists between Evelyn and Stanford White is something that Stanford White is always presented as being extremely reluctant and trying to pull away from it and regarding it as wrong and so on and so forth. And yet it happens. And it's an interesting movie. It's it's worth looking at. Uh, well, Simon, this has been a, uh, a great talk. I very much enjoyed your book. If um, someone wants to learn more about the uh, Evelyn Nedspit, Stanford White, and Harry Thaw uh, affair in more detail, uh, where can they get uh, a copy of the book, and where can they learn more about you and your work? Well, I have a website, and that's www.simonbarts.com. Um, the book has been out for about 18 months at least, so it may not still be in bookstores, but it's certainly possible to buy it on uh, Amazon.com or the website alibris.com. And it's out in paperback, of course, so uh, <clears throat> so that's that's one place to get it. And um, and I'm hoping to keep working on, on uh, legal cases and... Uh, and looking for another one that has as much uh, sensation as the one that I just wrote. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you for, uh, for having me on your podcast. Hey there. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to learn a little bit of history with me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you are interested in Simon's book, The Girl on the Velvet Swing, there is a link down in the description in your podcast app. And if you're interested in checking out more about Simon Botts and some of his other work, uh, there is a link to his website there as well, www.simonbotts.com. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and would like an opportunity to help support and produce the show, Head on over to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash CMTU history. And if you'd like to be more connected with goings on here at the podcast, uh, connect with me on uh, Twitter or Instagram, uh, both of which uh, are at CMTU history. All right, that is it for today's installment, and I will see you guys again in a couple weeks. Take care.